This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, non-profit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Support for this episode comes from the Loft Literary Center, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the nation's leading literary nonprofits, offering a wide array of online creative writing classes for all levels and genres. Online classes are being offered seasonally. Find out how to register at loft.org. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Body by Deepak Unakrishnan and Goulash by Luke Williams. Body, written and read by Deepak Unakrishnan. Listening time, 4 minutes, 12 seconds. Body. An international student, X, died this morning. Between the borders of international affairs and financial aid in the United States of academia. This was at university, where I paid to be enlightened. I was there when he fell. One minute, he was yelling at the receptionist, demanding to see an international student advisor, the next minute, dead. It was as though an important apparatchik in the land of Jesus tired of him, getting sick of his proclivity to exaggerate and his need to feed his scholarship greed. So, this important apparatchik assigned a hitman to assassinate student X by shooting an invisible bomb-tipped arrow into his heart and blowing it to bits in front of four other students who had never seen a man die in mid-sentence before. Brutal, efficient, and so fucking Tarantino. No one would touch him. Security balked. We don't have the authority to touch students, only order them to flash IDs or ask them why they like hovering around the lobby but go no place else, explained John, a man who worked for them. John wore a hat. John had a badge. John's uniform was starched. Removing a dead student required special permission, John shared. Security would therefore need to wait until they received a letter from the dean authorizing such a move. But the dean, being the dean, was always busy or ending or having or configuring meetings at this hour. Financial aid wanted nothing to do with student X. Mentioning the kid still owed the school half his tuition and that it was written into their charter that by no means was an employee of theirs picking up the remains of a student still in arrears. An international affairs counsellor requested measuring tape, discovered over half of the student's body lying in financial aid territory, emailed a memo to health services, cc'd the provost, BCC'd a secret immigration watchdog, bit into some twigs, and continued looking for cheap tickets to Prague on kayak. 
Because the student had decided to die around 4.27 p.m., the 26th, a Friday, three minutes before closing time, his body lay between the borders of international affairs and financial aid until Monday morning. Monday. When security, permission granted, came to take student X and keep him under lock and key in the cafeteria freezer, they found him still there. But an intrepid soul had fished out student X's passport and placed it on his chest, almost wedged into his ribcage so you couldn't miss it. In close proximity, was left behind the biggest cardboard box anyone had ever seen, a customs form, an address on a post-it, and a pen. Deepak Unikrishnan, author of Coffee Stains in a Camel's Teacup, is a short story writer from Abu Dhabi. He is presently working on a short story collection at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Goulash Written by Luke Williams Read by Anne Rushton Listening time, 16 minutes, 14 seconds The new pop-up advertisements I'm learning how to make open behind your internet browser without your permission. They wait there until you close your window. It's a passive way of getting your attention. My husband descends the stairs, twelve steps, and takes his seat, his back to our sink, stove, and refrigerator. The chair leg scrapes across our linoleum floor each morning, but there's never any indication of damage. His newspaper flutters. The classifieds implode. We hear the butter knife I use to spread his toast. When he goes back upstairs to shave and shower, I listen to the plumbing in our house. The pipes are old, corroded copper that need replacing. They never handle temperature variants well, groans all throughout the house. This is always followed by my husband's electric razor, the blades eating premature follicles. I continue working at my laptop. I work at home for advertising companies, hawking online pharmacies, kitchen utensils, lower APRs, contests for romantic getaways anything. Freelance graphics. It's not the most fulfilling job in the world, but what is? Twelve thumps, my husband descending, farewells given. The knocker on our front door swings one last tap as it shuts. Our truck starting, eight worn cylinders rattling to serve to justify their purpose, and then it's gone. I am all alone. I don't have an official place where I work. Downstairs at times, with the TV droning, but on occasion I hole up in the farthest corner of the house, the office, where the only personality in the room is my husband's colonial flintlock pistol. He inherited it from his line of fathers. This morning there is only the sound of my pecking at the keyboard, the odd chime of windows alerting me of empty entries, noises that sound like questions. I turn the TV on, surf through all of our unnecessary channels, settle for anything. It's typical daytime talk, women hosts that use only their first names. Around me, they talk of infidelity, the integrity of conversation. The participants, the audience, the host, the millions of people watching already know this, certainly, 
but everyone treats the revelations as new breakthroughs. I never pay too much attention to the particulars. It's all the same formula. My husband and I don't have any children. We stop trying. When he comes home, muttering like our truck and cold mornings, he'll stoop and kiss me before stalling out completely. It's a disenfranchised feeling brought home from work. I didn't cook. Our kitchen gravitates around the microwave and refrigerator. Leftovers, usually. Our oven and stove are inert machines, a preference of simple mechanics over complex. But they are a part of our kitchen at rest, sharing space. We assemble around the phone, relaying to each other, and the voice on the other end are butchering of Chinese nouns. My husband will take his place in the living room, inside his love seat, yanking a loose thread on his sock or cupping his testicles or some idle behavior like that. Just the same as work, I don't have an official spot in the evening. I finish up on the pop-ups I've been assigned, but do so at a hushed level, careful not to interrupt the report of a local resident, someone in the neighborhood, I think, detained for disturbing the peace. I can't tell if my husband is listening or just letting everything wash over him. Our house comes alive with the aroma of foreign food, our kitchen, our temporary hub. We take our portions, the different meats, rice, sauces, egg rolls. Then we disperse, my husband welcome back to his love seat with pre-recorded applause, and myself to the segregated office to finish in silence. In our office is a lamp, a sprawling calendar, three months behind, an oversized mahogany desk, and because my husband probably has no other place for it, his flintlock pistol. It sits in a locked, custom-made encasement. It's in there I finish editing an embedded commercial for a local news station. Products before information. It forces you to spend time with your sponsors before the news story. Requires extra buffering. The world in small delays. In order to reach the kitchen from the office, you cut through the living room. I can hear the clatter of silverware and plates in the sink. My husband escapes quickly. A kiss on my forehead for future services, a toll commissioned. The living room emits the clarion of police in pursuit. Flecks of rice, the red syrupy drool, shredded onions and peppers. I send it all down, scraping a spoon across the plate. Our in sinkerator swallows big gulps of water and then scrapes all at once, chokes and swallows, chokes and eats, then just chokes. It hurts my ears. We continue to watch TV in our individual places, him in his love seat, myself huddled at the end of the couch. My husband never surfs. He will stay with one channel with an indifferent loyalty, content to watch whatever pops up. When we go upstairs, our quaint house is filled with the thuds of four legs and the twelve stairs, alternating out of sync against aged hollow wood. I tied a towel around the upper left post of our bed when we first moved in so the mahogany headboard wouldn't slam into the wall during sex. Raspy barks, out-of-breath sounds wedged in our throat, aimed at one another. None last long. The bed calms, as does my pulse, and I listen to the wheeze of my husband's sleep apnea. Twelve steps down, the linoleum tortured. Newspaper folding, the scrape of butter against charred wheat. Then twelve steps ascending, agitated plumbing, nibbling of the razor, a goodbye, just a goodbye, 
and then the pistons and rods of our car wobble, wake up sulking. I'm working alone today in our office, secluded. I don't want to hear the TV's echo of domestic discrepancies aired out in our home. The animations for my advertisements aren't cooperating with the program code I wrote. The anthropomorphic germs march in place, defiant little microbes, instead of running from the sanitizing product that hired me. It's my mistake, I know. I just can't seem to pinpoint the error I keep making. My husband's family heirloom sits straddling the edge of the desk as if flirting with suicide. Who placed it there? I bring it in, closer to me. He keeps it for posterity, I think, but my husband's not connected to it like his father or grandfather, the exemplar of the generational gap. He never performs any upkeep on it. The handle is quaint, the wood bruised by natural decay. It's a bulbous heart-shaped handle. There's a strip, a steady line of rust that coats the silver barrel, a reminder of moisture that seeped in at some point. My husband had a case built to enclose it. It was falling apart long before he inherited it. He never uses our office. Captive by the house and my work. I spend all day with numbers, binary codes that normal people, everyday people like my husband, could never comprehend. The entries create patterns recognized by a CPU then then spits out a graphic, a representation, best as it can. Things transforming. My job and a day are all about things transforming. Time doesn't go inordinately slow or fast when I work. It just goes. Then there's a mutter of my husband entering, words I cannot comprehend. A meeting in the kitchen to exchange orders Greek tonight. Then the friction of his love seat reclining, the TV booming so loud it's hard to discern the action from dialogue. The door knocker that has the power to interrupt everything. The gnashing teeth, clicking saliva, dishes that detonate in a sink, a round of belching for him and the Tupperware that preserves our leftovers. Then twelve steps up. No sex. My husband's apnea as a metronome. One loud lacuna to fall asleep next to. I sleep in. Miss out on all the music of our morning. Work is tedious. Today it's banners for porno sites, titillating interests towards fetishists, transsexuals. Stubborn codes and non-responsive text cannot, for the life of me, get the word chicks to light up simultaneously with dicks. My husband keeps the flintlock in hopes of bestowing it to his son or daughter. We haven't discussed adoption. The Chinese we ordered the other night has already lost its smell. I'm at the refrigerator, door open, releasing cold air into our kitchen, eating straight from the carton. I don't want to dirty dishes because I'll have to wash dirty dishes. The food's completely neutralized by temperature. There's no taste. I can't tell if I'm eating my order or my husband's. The door alarm intercepts, alerts, whines about how I'm keeping the refrigerator from doing its job. I have never held my husband's flintlock pistol, even the day he took it out of its case to have it appraised by a friend who knew about old guns and their worth. On that day, my husband held it, too. It might appear charming on the surface, but your pistol is essentially worthless. Worthless, my husband said, not accustomed to the strength of the word. 
It's not very valuable in its condition. If you look here, you can see that the weapon is a single fire breech loader, fairly common for the time. You've seen movies where Confederates jam ammo down into the mouths of their rifles, right? I have. Good, then. Do you see this part here? My husband leaned in close to look at the minuscule piece, some lever that snapped on his pistol. That's your trigger mechanism. It's broken, obviously. Then I spoke up, wondering why that was so important. I could be wrong, but when I look at the condition of the barrel, forget the rust, you see how it's smoothed straight down, no dents or dings. I bet it was shot once and broke on the spot. I asked the appraiser if that sort of event was rare. He said it happened all the time. Things must fire, just fall apart. So what should we do with it, my husband said. Let me rephrase what I said earlier. It's not worthless. I'm sure someone could find value in it. My husband kept it for himself, despite its worthlessness. The front door slams, the door knocker jolted by momentum. A lack of idle mumbling, just a silence in between steps. Then I order pizza, no assembly tonight. One large half-and-half -half pie, my toppings relegated to one hemisphere. My husband's loveseat wails in relaxation. Evening football, contact sport, the tiny collected roaring of fans, all gathered in one spot to boo. Then there are twelve steps, a pair of twelve, teeth that chew on lips, sounds that rise and shrink down throats. I move during sex, push him away from hovering over me, push him to his back, press myself down on him. Our headboard's voice loud in the moment, the wadded towel under the bed as I slam the wood into our drywall. A tiny crater in the wall of our house, the proof of at least an orgasm. Scraping lipids on white toast. How does this feel? A chair uprooted. The newspaper delivered far too late to read. Then upset plumbing. Scalded pipes. The drag of a razor. Our car, mostly his, sputters in the driveway. The complaints of discrepancy beneath the hood. I don't even work today. There are assignments due soon. Deadlines. Indulgence and time wasted. I know. In my office, my husband's family heirloom sits safe and sealed, pressurized in an air-locked chamber. Nothing ever gets in, nothing ever gets out. I sit in the living room, in my husband's love seat. The TV's on, appealing for my attention. There are danger words, hooks, jingles, charged imagery, implication, nostalgia, assumptions, testimonials. All reminds me of work I should be doing, my responsibilities. I'll call in sick, make an excuse. I am surfing channels too hard, static, drumming on the up arrow, mashing it over and over. The receiver's choking, trying to catch up. Shows me a 12-car pileup somewhere near the neighborhood, then a talking head, and the benefits of an acai berry shake. Then a game show with an all-expense-paid trip to Berlin and two sweaty men shoving their fists into each other's mouths. The satellite scrolls on its own without my input. My hands in my office are strayed dogs on a scent. There's a whispered hiss when I flip the latch and remove the case. It's off the rack, in my hands. My fingers curve around the wooded, heart-shaped handle. It's much lighter than I expected. The trigger on my husband's flintlock pistol is indeed broken. I can pull back on it, and there's no spring, no feeling of resistance. 
This is what my husband wants to pass down to his son or daughter, this suburban antique. There is another hiss when I place the gun back into its case and seal the latch, air escaping, unwilling to share the space. I breathe out, too. My husband returns, wipes his feet against our welcome mat, says nothing upon entry, just as rubber soles scraping the carpet fiber and then the pursuit of the fast, no-hassle meal. I'm not hungry. We don't deliberate. I have no order tonight. Work has to be finished, the clacks of my keyboard granting long sequences of code, a physical purpose, obligations. My husband picks up on the fact I'm working under a pendulum, or he doesn't. We both sit in the living room, half listening to the TV, victim to a delay in food, then the door knocker, and explanations from the delivery man that the food went to the wrong house. Then there are twelve steps, no sex. The butter knife scrapes, his chair scrapes, a razor scrapes, his car that leaves the house, my husband steering. In my office, the air smells altered. An odor lingers, a slight odor that belongs to old, decaying things. It does not take much effort to open the encasement. It is even lighter than yesterday, air penetrating the wooden cracks in the handle, places where splinters are born. I carry my husband's antique flintlock through the living room, into the kitchen. My husband's family heirloom, so fragile and shoddily built, it could only discharge a single bullet. I make room, shove Tupperware to the back. The door alarm whines. A squeal of tires, eight cylinders at rest, the long day over, then a grumbling, throaty question, relentless and expected. I tell him we need to clear out our leftovers. The end. Luke Emil Williams has no significant writing credentials to speak of, yet. He dropped out from the University of Tennessee to write full-time. Still resides in Knoxville. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by the grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.